Cannabis Show. Nice to have you with us. I have my partner, Larry Mishkin, up in Chicago. Hey, Jim. Actually, uh, today you find me in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, wow. What brings you to Atlanta? Well, I'm coming down to Atlanta because, as it turns out, my oldest son is getting married. And so my wife and I traveled down here this weekend for a get-together with the new in-laws and to work out details of the wedding and all sorts of fun stuff like that. All right. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, it is. It's, you know, another stage in the life cycle, but it is very exciting, and uh, we're happy to be here. It's lovely in Atlanta, 58 degrees and sunny. Can't ask for anything nice. nicer than that. Nice. And is there foliage still in full bloom? Oh, beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. Everywhere you look. Wow. That's great. Well, it's cold here in Colorado. Still have some snow on the ground. The ski areas are opening. And so oh, nice. we're heading into, into winter here in Colorado. So, okay. yeah, got a lot going on in the cannabis world and the music, the music world. Yep. We continue to sort of feel the ramifications of the, the vape pen scare. One of the trends we're seeing here in Colorado is a turn to, to more people smoking flour. Many of my clients are wishing they had more flour on their shelves to sell, and the testing labs are getting backed up. So now it's seven to ten days to get your results of your testing back before you can put your flower on the shelf. Uh, so that's interesting that a year ago, pounds were selling for about $800, and today there's 1600 up to even 2000 a pound at wholesale. So after ten years, basically unlimited cultivation, uh, we still find here in Colorado a shortage of flour, which is an interesting phenomenon. It is. That's really amazing, I think. You know, and it's really speaks to the popularity of the product. But, yeah, in Illinois, we've seen the same thing, an increase in demand for flour and edibles. Edibles have really spiked. On the flour side, what's really interesting in Illinois is that a lot of the cultivators are starting to stock up for January 1st. And so just when the demand for flour is starting to spike again, the uh, powers that be are rolling back the amount of flour that's available. So uh, there's all sorts of things going on, you know, trying to get all that worked out and see how that strategy can play and where we're going to be on January 1st. But I've even had some of the local bud tenders, you know, off the record letting me know, you've got the ability, now it's a good time to stock up and uh, make sure you have some because there may not be as much around over the next few months. But cook that guard. Yes, I think we're going to see lines around the block in Chicago in January. Right. Well, it'll be interesting to see how hardy everybody is. It'll be five degrees below zero, but you're right. They're, they're going to be lined up everywhere. And uh, it'll just be another one of those national news stories. Like we've seen when every state goes to adult use, that, that's the popular story, right? The reporters standing outside the dispensary with a thousand people. and It's kind of fun. A quick update in Missouri that there's been some back and forth between the regulators and the applicants. And the state of Missouri had not made it clear how they wanted the corporate structure questions answered. So a lot of the 
applications, I wouldn't say they weren't rejected. They were allowed to resubmit, but they did ask for more clarification on corporate structure. As a result, well, Jim, um, I, can, I can comment on that one directly because I represented a couple of groups in Missouri and we submitted our application. And the, the way that they requested the information was crazy because they wanted to identify the corporate structure. So they had a piece of paper and they, you had to identify the owner of each entity, but they wanted the individual's name, social security number, and that kind of stuff. When in fact, we had set it up with wholly owned entities and they didn't have any way to demonstrate. Some, as one entity was wholly owned by another entity, and we submitted our applications. We did get bounce backs from the state that told us, no, no, this isn't what we mean. Here's how you have to do it. And they did. They gave us seven days to revise. But when we called them up to try and get specificity to make sure we were doing it right, we literally got a woman on the phone, couldn't have been nicer, uh, and just told us flat out they had no idea. They just didn't even know. Just put down whatever we thought was good and sent it back in. And, you know, if they didn't like it, they back to us. So I thought, well, okay, let's see how that works. But yeah, it was very interesting there. So yeah, it's going to be interesting in Chicago. It's going to be interesting times. And as long as we're talking about shortages, I just saw something interesting the other day, Jim, that maybe you can comment on. I read that there were 20 dispensaries in Denver that failed surprise folding uh, yeast tests done by the city uh, when they came in and, and tested the flour on stock, and they were all forced to shut down. Anything about that? Yes. I know that the testing has been uh, very rigorous in the past six months. Perhaps that's also leading to our shortage of flour on the shelves. But yes, we, we are aware of that. As I mentioned, the, there's seven to 10 days wait now on when you drop a sample off at the testing facilities. So when you're growing inside, most of our flour in Colorado is grown inside. We don't have a lot of outdoor. We have some outdoor but it's fairly tricky. Indoor, things can go wrong, especially when you have a drastic difference in temperature between outside and inside. Your walls can sweat and that leads to mold and mildew. So yes, growing inside can be very tricky. And as I said, the testing is rigorous. So between those two things, you can have problems with test with your product and testing. Very important because if you have two back-to-back -back crop failures, you might find yourself out of business. Another thing right. that's going on in Colorado, I don't know if we mentioned it on prior shows, but over 100 license holders have turned their license into the state of Colorado because they just can't make it. So the trend is towards really? larger, more sophisticated. Yep. And I think that's what's leading to our increase in prices and shortage of product in Colorado. You know, your small boutique cultivations, you know, five, 10,000 square feet, very difficult for them to compete with the 100,000 square foot cultivations. So we're sure. seeing a market consolidation towards the larger facilities for cultivation. Okay, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of nice to know, though, on the other hand as well, that the local government is out there keeping an eye on things and not allowing product that's been contaminated like that to necessarily make it to the shelves. Right. Now, sometimes they will let you extract that product because the extracted process cleans up some of those contaminants. I see what you're saying. Okay. It, well, and that's fine, too, right? I just don't want to get home after I've paid a lot of money and open up my container and see something growing in there that I don't know what it is. Yep. Well, that's true. And, you know, testing is part of our legal cannabis program, so it's something that you have to deal with. Yeah, so anyway, Missouri, back to Missouri. I think they were optimistically thought they would start to issue licenses by now, late October, early November. But now it looks like it's going to be 
by the end of this year, or maybe they might need an extension into early January. Is that what you're hearing, Larry? That is, that is what I'm hearing, yes. That's exactly what I'm hearing. So we'll just have to wait and see how that plays out. Even a state like Illinois that's already got an established program, everybody was getting annoyed because one of the things they have done is set up two question and answer periods. So you could submit written questions to the relevant agencies by October 15th, and they were supposed to have responses back to us by last Friday. Got to last Friday, there were no responses, and they said, oh, we'll have them for you this coming Friday. And although I'm on the road, I've checked, and apparently the responses have just hit. There's going to be one more question period that closes on November 15th, but with a deadline of the end of December, that doesn't give people a lot of time to sit around waiting to get the answers to their questions. So, you know, it's imperative, I think, on the state as well, right, to understand the importance of this information and the accuracy of information we're getting back from the state. But given the amount of money our clients are spending and that they're spending then back on the state, I don't think it's unreasonable to get that kind of cooperation. No, not at all. I mean, yeah, you're talking probably two or $300,000 to submit a application in Missouri between your attorneys, your accountants, your consultants, your cash flow forecast, getting the application filled out. So, yeah, it's a significant capital investment. Well, you know, we'll see how all that works out. Something else that I just noticed recently, too, Jim, is that the federal government seems to once again be showing its colors, which I guess it's not even surprising anymore. We've kind of come to expect it, but there's a real, real, real outpouring of support for the cannabis industry coming from Washington, D.C. And we've all heard about the Rohrbacher Bar Amendment from past years, which was designed to inhibit the DEA and the Justice Department from using appropriated funds for purposes of interfering in state-approved medical marijuana programs. And we had a couple of years in a row where the question was, Will they amend it again? Will they tag it on? Because those are, those typically come on as a tacked-on amendment uh, on the House floor once it gets to committee. Uh, but this year, the Senate went ahead and approved the spending bill that right in the spending bill itself uh, has language that would continue to protect the state-approved medical marijuana programs. More importantly, it passed 80 by a vote of 84 to 9. So, you know, once again, we're seeing huge bipartisan support on this issue. The one thing to keep in mind is that on its face, it only protects medical program. It's not designed to protect adult use. Actually, the, the House earlier this year did vote and passed a proposal that would have protected both. However, the Senate has not taken it up yet. And from what I've been hearing, there's not a lot of, of expectation or hope that they'll pass that, especially now that they've passed this one that specifically focuses on medical. But nevertheless, I think it's a great thing uh, that the federal government continues to rein in federal law enforcement to allow these state programs to prosper. Yeah, we'll see who we get at the federal level. I still don't anticipate any legislative fixes for uh, 280E that would allow all tax deductions. Although there was a recent case that crossed my desk, the Northern California, forget the full name of the company, but they went to a tax court. They lost on all accounts. All counts were they lost on. But on appeal, one of the appeals court judges issued a dissent. And he actually used the example that I've used for many years, that how can you owe tax in a year when you lost money? If you lose round number $50,000, but you have to add back $100,000 of non-deductible expenses, you pay right. tax on positive 50000 a year you lost. And this judge pointed out that under our 16th Amendment to the Constitution, it empowers Congress to lay a tax on income. And this judge pointed right. out that 
there is no income and you're laying a tax. So it's a small chink in the armor. I'm hoping that, um, I really think 280 is going to have to go up to the Supreme Court, which I think we'll get there because I'm an accountant. I'm not a lawyer, but Larry's an excellent attorney and he might know more about uh, procedures in court than myself. But one of the purposes of the Supreme Court is when you have different jurisdictions with different findings, that's where the Supreme Court will step in to make the law consistent throughout the United States. Larry? Oh, for an accountant, that's a pretty good statement of the law, and you're absolutely right. The big question is, it's not just a matter of conflict, though, that the court itself has to believe that the conflict goes to a central issue that, that needs to be resolved. And it remains to be seen just how attentive the the U.S. Supreme Court will be to the cannabis industry. But nevertheless, these tax issues and other types of issues are going to reach a level eventually where I I think you're right, Jim, that we're we're going to have to get a national response on this that everybody knows about, everybody can rely upon. And I think that what this judge did was very brave and very smart. And you can't just be bullied by the IRS and say, well, sorry, but you're going to pay taxes even though you lost money because you paid your electric bill. Yes. I actually got to explain that to a judge in tax court at the very beginning, and it's a case that's still percolating through the appeals court system called Feinberg v. Commissioner. So we'll we'll see. I still don't think it's far enough along that I would start advising my clients to take all their deductions. What we do here at our shop is we do honor 280E. We do what we can to mitigate it, but we tell our clients we can't make 280E go away, that they're not going to be able to get a lot of their retail expenses. However, we do something called a protective claim, which basically we file the paperwork to keep the statute of limitations, which is generally three years. And, you know, the statute of limitations is a good thing for taxpayers. It's generally something that you can breathe a sigh of relief every April 15th or October 15th, that your tax returns that are over three years old will now not be audited except under extraordinary circumstances. So we follow what's called a protective claim. And what that does, it keeps the statute of limitations open, but just for that one particular issue. And so we've been filing protective claims for several years here at our shop. And if it ever comes out of the Supreme Court that 2ED is unconstitutional, We'll go back and request refunds for all these clients we kept the statute of limitations open for. Okay. Very interesting stuff. I love, you know, where these legal theories and, and t- uh, tax theories come from. And I think it's just, you know, it's inevitable that we're going to have to get some resolution on this because it's not sustainable to ask an industry to compete with one hand tied behind its back. So that's yeah. great work, and it's always good to hear what's going on. Due to the wonders of modern-day technology and taping and all of that, I actually want to talk to you, Jim, about something that will not be quite as current at the time our listeners hear this particular podcast. Uh, but nonetheless, I think, you know, given who we are and what our show is about, it's important to touch on it. And I'm talking about the Dead & Company show last night, really last night, at Madison Square Garden in New York, the night of Halloween. It was their Halloween show. And first of all, there's probably no better place in the world to see a concert than Madison Square Garden. Just the history and everything that goes along with it. It's a tremendous place. Then you're in the middle of New York City, and you're with the debt. So um, I'm going to give a special shout-out to a good friend of mine. His name is Avi Haas. And he was actually at the show and was kind enough to fill us in on the details of it, knowing that my wife and I always like to hear about these things. But 
in typical dead fashion. They came out and, and made a real night of it. Apparently made a strong statement right out of the box, opening up with Ripple. It's always fun to hear. Not quite as if you have a Jerry play it, but great song nonetheless. And they played a really good show all night. But what I was hoping, and absolutely, if, if there's one thing you can count on them in the other Halloween shows, tradition. And for the encore, they came out and did a really, really hot cover of Werewolves of London, which Jerry used to do every year on Halloween. And I love Jerry, the way he would sing it. And But I'm glad to hear that they're still doing it and still playing it. It sounded like it was a great show. Huh. Wow, that does sound exciting. And I believe after Madison Square Garden, they're playing the next couple nights on Long Island? That's correct. That's correct. So it's a, it's a whole New York a whole New York scene, and then uh, they make their way out to do a few more shows before winding up out of California for uh, the New Year's road, and we'll be out there for that. Yes, I will. There's two shows in Los Angeles, the 27th and 28th, and then the 30th and 31st in San Francisco. We'll be at the L.A. shows and are very much looking forward to those. Always good to see our good friends Dead & Co. with John Mayer doing Jerry's part. So glad to hear that they put in a good Absolutely. Halloween show at MSG. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's like any uh, any other celebration, right? You can be out doing it a lot of different ways, but, you know, somehow doing it with them, you know, really kind of makes it a little more fun. And I'm sure it must have been great to come stumbling out of that show at the end of the night and been right at the heart of uh, Manhattan. Overall, though, it sounded like a great night. My friend uh, reported well on it. And yeah, if you can ever see Dad or Dad and Company on Halloween, you're going to almost guarantee to be able to hear a great werewolf of London. And shout out to a legend who's long gone but not forgotten, Warren Devon, who wrote that tune. It's a great song, and I'm happy to hear him doing it. Very good. Well, back to business a little bit. What we've been working on this week are several business valuations for marijuana businesses and critiquing the work of other appraisers in different parts of the country. And value a small, closely held business, there's places you can look to get comparable multiples of revenue or multiples of EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation. So, but you don't have that for the cannabis. You know, we've been involved in a couple of dozen purchases and sales, so we have our own small database. And what we see in Colorado, again, a competitive market, you can still go to the state of Colorado and apply for a brand new license. You don't have to buy an existing license. But the values here tend to be between 0.8 and 1.2 times revenue. And we had a valuation okay. across our desk that was five times revenue. And so a, lot, a very large difference. And I don't know, maybe people are paying those prices in other states. But it, as I say, man, if you're going to pay five times revenue for a cannabis company, you got to sell a lot of marijuana to get a return on your investment. So that's one interesting aspect on the business side is we're seeing values just all over the place. Well, I think that's a product of, you know, a couple of these gigantic sales go through like Greenhouse and Grassroots uh, when they did their sale a few months ago and, you know, $875 million. And, you know, I know we've talked that that's broken out and a lot of it into stock and everything else. But, you know, people just hear the $875 million part. There's dispensaries, medical dispensaries in Illinois that are currently being offered for sale medical licenses. However, in speaking with most of the people who are interested in selling their licenses, you know, they're viewing themselves in that category. And you know, there's there's groups asking as much as twenty million dollars for a single medical license, which, you know, some people might say, Hey, look, if it gives you a leg up on the adult use, it might be worth it, but it seems like you're gonna have to sell a lot of marijuana to make that back up. Yeah. 
And using the publicly traded companies, I don't think is a very good barometer because as far as earnings before taxes, et cetera, some people call that EBIT, a lot of them don't have any EBIT. They don't have any earnings. So you have these right. multi, multi-million dollar deals. And when you look at their financial statements, which we do here, you see nothing but a history of operating losses. So it's very difficult to use that in a small, closely held marijuana company we do a lot of what's called business divorces. That's when two partners, you know, jump into business together. Right. And then a few years later, they are not happy with each other. We call that a business divorce. And then we have to value the business yep. so they can go their separate ways. Yeah, we, we get a it, We it, don't it, really use the, the publicly traded Canadian market because, again, the valuations just don't make any sense. Right. That, that's, that's really where the problem comes in. Uh, you know, I've, I've explained to my clients that what each one of these is going to be valued in its own way. And, you know, somebody says, well, how do I know what my dispensary is worth? Simple. Whatever somebody's willing to pay you. Yeah. Well, I don't have anything musically. I'll look forward to reporting the Dead & Company shows in California next month. But things are a yeah, little well, quiet great. here in Colorado on the, on the music side of things. I could give a brief plug to my son Jack's band. They're a fish tribute oh, yeah? band called Kings of Prussia. Lovely. You can find some of their videos on Jack Marty's Facebook page, but they do really well. They play in Denver most Thursday nights. And as we've discussed in the past, there's so many Grateful Dead tribute bands. They actually have Grateful Dead tribute band festivals. But on the fish side, I like that. Yeah, there's very few fish tribute bands out there. There's a few around Denver and a few around Colorado. But one of the reasons that there's not as many tribute bands on the fish side is the music is very difficult to play it's very complicated music not that i'm a musician who could explain exactly why that is but it does explain why there's so few fish tribute bands well look at it this way if you're going to be a cover band i have to believe it's a lot easier to cover friend of the devil than it is to cover you enjoy myself right a 25 minute instrumental that they know like the back of their head but, you know, to figure it out and to be able to play it and, and to really get into all the little avenues where they go with those tunes, uh, you're right, it's really, really tricky. It's, it's, it's not something that, that easily lends itself to replication like, you know, the, the basic parts of, of the dead. Now, the good dead cover bands are the ones that can go beyond the lyrics and, and freeform a little bit, too. Not everyone can do it, so it's tricky. But, yeah, that was my thought exactly, Jim, but on the fifth side, it must be a lot harder to get it done. Yeah, well, as much of a jam band as the Grateful Dead is, and all the dead tribute bands. Fish has even, you know, if anything, more extended jams. Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, for the, which is why it took me a lot longer to ultimately, you know, really get into the band and really, you know, figure out how I liked them and why I liked them because you have to listen to those jams. You know, they don't have the catchy hook necessarily like you get in a lot of the Grateful Dead songs that kind of reel you right in. Mm-hmm. And Fish is an acquired taste and really. Everybody says to like the dead, you got to go see them. You, you can't appreciate fish listening to them on the radio. You have to be in that building. Correct. Correct. Yeah, one of the places where Kings of Prussia plays has a house Hammond B3 organ. And our son oh, Jack wow. is the keyboard player. So he sets up his uh, smaller keyboard on top of that Hammond organ. And he just loves letting that big Hammond B3 rip. Hmm, I can only imagine. Love those Hammond B3s. Nothing better than being at a dead show and watching front play his Hammond B3 and that little wheel on the bottom spinning around so fast you think it's going to come off. You're like, yeah. there they go. They're, they're hitting it again. 
Yeah, in fact, they were the warm-up band for Melvin Seals at the, the name of the club is B on Key in Denver, right by the Brown Palace in Denver. And uh, Jack was so excited that, hey, Dad, I got to play on the same Hammond organ as Melvin Seals. That's very cool. Very cool so, indeed. Well, that's, you know, the benefit of being a musician. Well, Jack's a senior in college, and he'll finish up this spring. And he could go cool. either way into music or into computer engineering, which is what his degree will be in. So, uh, okay, well, you can play around with both until one of them uh, becomes a day job. All right, everybody. I think we're coming to the end of our time slot. So it's good talking to you, Larry, and hearing things out. And we'll have a lot more to talk about here in a few weeks after we've got a few more musical events under our belts. Well, I think that's right. I think we're at a very exciting time. A lot of things are happening, and it's going to be really fun to watch Missouri and Illinois and a lot of these states roll out over the next few months. You know, there'll be some good, there'll be some bad, but at the end of the day, it's legalized marijuana, so it can't be that bad. Yes, yeah, the trend is towards full legalization. I like to say, you know, you listen to all the politicians right now and all that's going on with impeachment and scandals and the 2020 presidential election, you almost never hear anybody talk about marijuana, and that's a good thing. We, we would prefer to be under the radar and not be on the front page of the paper. I agree. My opinion is nobody cares about marijuana anymore, and that's the way we like it. 100%. Couldn't agree with you more. All right, everybody. Well, listen, Jim, you have a great week, yep. and I will look forward to touching base with you again next week. Okay, everybody, over and out from the Deadhead Cannabis Show. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.